0: Episode 55, Fire Stick. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a May 21st, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. This podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The world's largest remaining stand of tall grass prairie is in a region of Kansas known as the Flint Hills, and ranchers there seem determined to burn it to the ground. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a fire stick. With an appearance that resembles a pipe bomb, the fire stick is used to ignite massive grassland fires that actually help preserve this vanishing ecosystem. Find out how fire can inspire tourism and how exactly this fire stick is related to General Sherman's March to the Sea. Later, things go boom as we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. In today's episode, we connect William Allen White, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from Emporia, Kansas, to the atom bomb. Did white meet with evil dictators and correspond with brilliant physicists in order to expose the Manhattan Project? Not quite, but close. But first, Fire Stick.
1: world and
0: me to swear I was before Good morning, Rebecca.
1: Good morning, world
0: Today we're going to talk about a Fire Stick. Which uh, sounds pretty glamorous, but unfortunately it's basically a four foot long aluminum pipe with a hitch at one end and a spout at the other.
1: Yeah, it, it looks essentially like a pipe bomb, which I like to go, I want to go on record as saying that was the reason I Googled pipe bomb on my work computer in case Homeland Security is listening.
0: <laughs> That's good. It's good to clarify that. Um, if you want to actually see a picture of the pipe bomb slash fire stick, uh, you can go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the Cool Things Podcast icon.
1: Or you can come see our Forces of Nature exhibit up through the end of the year.
0: Exactly. Um, in theory, this fire stick was used to ignite grass fires. Um, How does the pipe work and why would someone want to intentionally light grass fires?
1: Well, as you said, Merle, um, it's about a four to six foot long pipe and it's capped at both ends and the working end is the threads on the pipe are scored, which means whatever fluid you put in that is going to drip slowly out that end. Mm -hmm. So you hitch the other end onto the back of an all-terrain vehicle, uh, Fill the pipe with gas, gasoline. With gasoline. Gasoline. And you light the dripping end, um, and then you just take off across the prairie and lighting fire as you run along in your on your ATV mm-hmm. and the reason you would want to do that is because it is really an essential management technique for prairie or grassland. It's something that over, really over the course of about 150 years, ranchers have learned is really important if you don't burn the grassland you will have invasive species start to take over and that includes weeds shrubs, uh, trees that are non-native um, and There is some evidence to indicate that the Native Americans who originally uh, lived here and did use burning as a technique to preserve the prairie, their techniques actually expanded the grasslands beyond what would have been here if it had been left alone. And and another reason that fire works so well in the prairie ecosystem is that most of the roots of prairie grasses are underground. They can go as deep as 12 feet, Um, whereas the weed seeds, the invasive shrubs, and non-native species are not adapted to fire. So fire comes through, destroys all the ground clutter, um, takes away all of the invasive species, or at least um, sets them back quite a bit. And the prairie grass comes back, fresh and green. The bison, two centuries ago that lived here, loved that grass. That was one of the reasons the Native Americans burnt um, the prairies, because they knew that that would attract the bison. And for ranchers, the same holds true. I mean, they know that it's good for the cattle.
0: And like you mentioned, for good portions of the 20th century, people stopped burning. why did they stop burning and uh, what sort of impact did that have on the prairie sort of in the long term mm-hmm.
1: well uh, as I mentioned the the farmers the you know, prairie fires threatened their homesteads but there was another reason for it too and that was that at the time people were under the impression that the prairie of course was a great desert I think there are still many people in our country who believe that <laughs> it may be that oh, they referred to as like <laughs> the great
0: American desert it's yeah. the
1: flyover land um, so um, they thought that people actually thought hundred Fifty years ago, that by suppressing fire, that trees would spring up on the prairie, and it would be this lush landscape, um, wet. You know fu- uh, that water would would spontaneously burst from right, the, the ground. Trees
0: were supposed to attract water. Trees attracted something. water,
1: believe it or not. In, in that, um, yeah, that sentiment. And so, by burning, you were essentially destroying this opportunity to turn it all into what the American East Coast, mm-hmm. um, except a little flatter. Um, So they really felt that burning the prairie was bad, and and to stop that was going to make it this great place where everybody could live very comfortably. And as we all know now, the prairie um, is—or this part of the country has a great cyclical climate, uh, drought and wet years, um, and so it's just part of our climate. We're never going to be as lush as the East Coast, and stopping the prairie fires would make no difference for that.
0: We just need to plant more trees, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the early spring, uh, when you're driving through Kansas, you might actually be able to see some of the prairie fires. Uh, if you're driving along I-70 near Manhattan, or if you're driving along, I think it's uh, the Turnpike, I- I-35? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm, that sounds right. Th-
0: between Topeka and Emporia. Um, why does there seem to be so many fires in these particular areas?
1: Well, um, Interstate 70, this would be west of Topeka where we are. Manhattan's about uh Fifty-minute drive west of here. Um, That is um, a preserve called the Kansas Prairie. Um, The University, Kansas State University, manages that prairie. Uh, You you know more about that, actually. You've talked to some naturalists out there.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It's a partnership between Kansas State University's their biology department and the um, Nature Conservancy.
1: Nature Conservancy, very actually
0: private. Yeah. conservation group. Mm-hmm.
1: And the Nature Conservancy also uh, is in a partnership um, preserving prairie further south, like you mentioned, on the Kansas Turnpike, which is would be southwest of Topeka around the town of Emporia. Um, and Nature Conservancy is in a partnership with the National Park Service. And there's a wonderful, wonderful um, National Park Service preserve there called the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve. The Tallgrass Prairie Preserve, you can actually go, the rangers will take you out into the preserve to the high spot and everywhere you look it's undisturbed by humans so you really get the feel of what this must have been like um, either before humans came here or you know before the white settlers came here it's a fantastic site.
0: I know at Kanza Prairie they actually established it as a research station because so much they're both tall grass tall, they're both I guess, samples of tall grass prairie. And they established it as a research center because the tall grass prairie was disappearing so rapidly mm-hmm. that um, biologists were concerned that they weren't going to be able to study it as an ecosystem anymore. And so they established this research facility near Manhattan. And actually, there's portions of it because it's in the Flint Hills, which is Flint and Rocky, and it was unsuitable for agricultural farming. Yeah. So it had always it's been ranching. Mm-hmm. Um So there were some areas that of the tall grass prairie that remained, and there were some areas that had never been touched you know, by a plow. I mean, they were yeah. pretty much in the original condition that they were. There's, I mean, today, there's portions that were in the original condition that they were when, you know, white man came out yeah. here.
1: Yeah, and you bring up a good point, too, the whole notion of research, because for so many years it was considered bad practice to burn. Um, actually, um, the scientific researchers have found that it's essential, um, and they do this through controlled—they they actually study burns. Um, they will set aside some areas and not burn them, and then note all the invasive species, um, cedar trees that spring up. And, and really, it, it, sounds, it sounds like that's the eastern um, ecosystem taking over, but it's not. It's really almost like junk trees and and bad. It just it looks very bad. You can tell as you're driving along the interstate where somebody does not manage the, their prairie well because it looks overgrown and cluttered. It's not true prairie. Um, so the research has been very important to confirming what the Flint Hills ranchers have known for a long time, which is that you have to burn
0: this particular fire stick that we're looking at. It was fashioned by Tracy Talkington and used in Chase County, Kansas, to conduct. Controlled burns. Um, Who is Tracy Talkington and what is a controlled burn? Is there such a thing as a controlled burn?
1: I would not like to be the person in charge of a controlled burn. (laughs) Uh, Yes, apparently there is. Um, Don't attempt this at home. But the way to um, do a controlled burn is to really carefully think about where the locations of fire breaks are on your property. That could be a stream or a road um, or a hedge line, hedgerow. Or it could be a fire break that you create artificially um, by, you know, burning a strip and putting putting out the fire. Um, you also have to consider temperature and humidity. And this is most important in Kansas the wind. We are the people of the south wind, and there is strong wind here. Um, interestingly enough, you want to make sure that you're burning so that the fire moves into the wind because the wind suppresses the speed of that um, fire. Like we said, you know, in the, the old days, um, farmers and their families and even Native American tribes were overtaken by these these grass fires that started, sometimes were started by lightning. So what you want to do, and they were fueled by the winds, the winds pushed them along. So you, what you want to do is you want to um, start your wind, start your fire, and make sure it burns in the direction of the wind, and the wind suppresses the speed of it. And a lot of these uh, farmers and ranchers, like Tracy Talkington, he he's from... Um, of ranch family that has been ranching in the Flint Hills for at least 50 years um, they've been burning probably most of that time. And they do these cooperative burns with their neighbors. So a, an optimal crew is at least, a, at minimum, four people. You have one person who's the fire starter. Wouldn't you want to be that person?
0: Fire starter. <laughs> Not fire putter outer. or fire no, no,
1: you want to be the fire starter, the, the person who's driving the ATV and, and setting this fire line really fast and, of course, in a very controlled way. And then you have two people who operate a water sprayer. And what they're doing is is essentially putting out the fire That are right behind the fire line to make sure it burns in the correct direction. And then you have other people who follow along behind well behind the path of the fire, making sure that there's nothing smoldering. Uh Um, So, yeah, I think I'd rather drive the ATV, although we have that pipe bomb kicking along behind you. I don't
0: know if I would be comfortable (laughs) with the pipe bomb behind me.
1: The interesting thing about the fire sticks are they say that there's never been one that has exploded. Um, The reason being that they're capped so oxygen cannot get into uh, the fuel source. Um, And also what I think is fascinating is the the notion of a fire stick or a fire setter that looks like this pipe, pipe bomb, is unique to the Kansas Flint Hills. It's a homemade device. Um, And each rancher has a little, you know, different twist they put on it. You know, like ours is bent on the end, which means on the working end, it drags flat to the ground, parallel to the ground. So everybody can design their own. There's no commercial fire fire pipe or fire stick uh, business Uh that that makes them for sale. So you have to make it yourself.
0: Interestingly, um, prairie burning has morphed into a tourism industry. Uh, Let's say, for instance, like I had some pyromaniacal tendencies Hmm. and I wanted to burn some land. Could I legally do that?
1: Are you asking this question for a friend?
0: (laughs) Or is this you? (laughs) No, I just wanted to use the (laughs) word pyromaniacal.
1: That's a hard word to pronounce. Um, Yeah, actually, there's at least one rancher in the Kansas Flint Hills who is operating this little industry where you can pay, I think it's about hundred dollars for a day and you get to do two controlled burns with a group of other people and apparently he gets quite a a lot of people yeah he also has a barbecue i think and uh, so yeah you just have to google um, prairie fire and tourism and see what pops up if you're really interested in this
0: (laughs) of course barbecue and uh, prairie burn would go hand in hand you
2: know
0: (laughs) finally my last question relates to the civil war sort of In 1864, General William Sherman began what is known as Sherman's March to the Sea, which was a psychological and strategic campaign to end the South's capacity for war. Sherman was known for his application of the Scorched Earth Policy, which meant he burned massive amounts of crops and infrastructure. Do you think Sherman would have appreciated a piece of technology like this fire stick? He could have hooked it behind a horse. And uh, they didn't have gasoline, so maybe he fills it with, like, whale oil or something.
1: That is quite a mental picture. I like
0: that. <laughs> Horses pulling pipe bombs from Atlanta to, uh, I to, think the, to the
2: sea.
1: probably many people in the South are very happy that Sherman didn't know about fire sticks because he could have covered a lot more ground than he did in a lot faster time mm-hmm. period. Sherman's flaming march to the sea. Well, I'd, I'd also like to think about... This brings to mind the um, 1871 Great Fire in Chicago, uh-huh. and I'm happy personally that Mrs. O'Leary's cow didn't light its tail on fire and run through the streets of Chicago. <laughs> Instead, it just kicked over the lantern in the barn because it could have really, it, you know, it could have kept going past Chicago and lit other cities on fire. So.
0: so Mrs. O'Leary's cow could have been, you know, thank God it wasn't. One of the first (laughs) fire sticks? Yeah, yeah. Pipe bomb tail? Uh I don't know.
1: We can be thankful for that.
0: All right, Rebecca. Well, thanks for telling us about the fire stick, and thanks for telling us about the tall grass prairie. It's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, and joining me today is Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman, Hello. and Museum Assistant Director, Rebecca Martin. Hi. And today, we are simply radiating with excitement for this week's challenge, which was to connect William Allen White to the atom bomb. But we before we reveal the connections, Rebecca, could you provide us a little background on the old A-bomb?
1: Yes, um, and I can't do it in 10 words or less, you know, like we have <laughs> done with the Civil War, but I, I'll try. Um, in the 1930s, a number of developments were coming together, and one of them was uh, scientists were able to control nuclear reactions. And unfortunately, there were also intelligence reports that the Nazis were purifying uranium with the goal being the development of a super bomb Nazis uh, yeah the evil Nazis um, and this threat led to the creation of the Manhattan Project which many of us know by watching PBS um, was the secret lab in the New Mexico desert at which the world's greatest physicists assembled uh, and over a period of about six years um, they refined uranium and created a working atomic bomb before Germany or Japan could do it
0: um, why did they call it the Manhattan Project any idea
1: I didn't look that up Sorry, Are you get to okay, so, cut out this part you going to cut out this part. I've always
0: wondered <laughs> I've always wondered.
1: You asked me brief. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, uh well, we'll begin the solutions with a theory provided from our boy Nick in Emporia, and Nick writes uh, the atomic bomb was developed first in the u s under the Manhattan Project. Which, we don't know why it's Manhattan, but... <laughs> this was started by FDR, or I'm sorry, this was started after FDR was convinced by numerous scientists in 1939 to begin the process before the Germans succeeded. Albert Einstein was one of the scientists who contributed to the letter. Einstein had met with William Allen White at Harvard in 1935 when both were getting honorary degrees. So, according to Nick, that's the connection. Adam Baum to the Manhattan Project to FDR to Einstein to William Allen White.
1: Five, four degrees, four degrees.
0: Yeah. Okay, Nicola, can you beat that?
1: Well, I can do it
2: in fewer degrees. I can't include Einstein. (laughs) You know, that might trump my solution just right there. But um, here's what I have. Uh, The development of the atom bomb under the Manhattan Project was overseen by Henry Louis Stimson, who was the Secretary of War under FDR. Uh, he was the main decision maker, and he even prevented the military from dropping a bomb on Kyoto because he had spent his honeymoon there and had fond memories. Oh, I heard it's lovely in the spring. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks to him,
1: no <laughs> Luckily, atomic bombs dropped. Still,
2: is. <laughs> it's still <Yeah>. there. <laughs> um, Stimson had also served as Secretary of War under William Howard Taft from 1911 to mm. 1913. When Taft was campaigning for the presidential nomination in 1908, he spent a day in Emporia with William Allen White and Sally Lindsay White. Um, Of that day, White wrote that neither Sally nor I realized at the end of that long day that this genial, chuckling, courteous, kindly gentleman was in his heart a deep-dyed political and economic conservative and bullheaded at that.
0: And Stimson, um, he knew a couple of people that— William L. White knew, right? Yeah,
2: he actually served in the campaigns of, like, four different presidents who all slept in the bed at <laughs> yeah. William L. White's house. That was a famous so, bed.
0: So, in a weird, you know, by association sort of way, Stimson also slept in that bed.
2: In a weird way, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Um, Rebecca, I believe you also have a solution, but this involves a rather interesting meeting between William Ella White and an evil dictator.
1: Yeah, are there any good dictators... I don't know of any, but uh, yeah. So that's it's, a philosophical it's, question. Mm, well, we'll leave that for another time. Yes, so um, we discovered by reading the ever-popular William Allen White autobiography. Uh, <laughs> this is
0: called ever-popular. Ever-popular on this Between program. Us three.
1: <laughs> it gets a lot of page play. Um, White, believe it or not met Benito Mussolini in 1933. Yes, William Allen White really got around. And, I, you know, I was thinking about that. Did I, 10 years ago, ever think, I'm going to go to Iraq and try and look up Saddam Hussein? No, but uh, White was in Italy, and while he was there, he got an interview with Benito Mussolini.
0: Which is a, a fascinating feat in and of itself. I mean, yes. William Allen White, this, like, newspaper editor from the middle of Kansas, how did he get a meeting with Mussolini. (laughs) It
1: just proves our point. He was world famous. Everybody knew William Allen White, even Mussolini. Um, The the neat thing about their interview was that uh, White told him, I mean, White you know, obviously in 1933, Mussolini is not completely um known to be completely evil yet. Um, but there is some word getting out so uh, that things were not going you know the way most people would like them to go in Italy. But but White tells him in this interview, he teases Benito Mussolini. He tells him that Russia was the most stable government on Earth. And Mussolini exclaims, what? And White says, because they're still shooting them in Russia. They're quicker on the trigger trigger than you people are. I mean, can you imagine teasing a dictator? <laughs> but that's our William a. L. White. <laughs> so I digress. So White means Benito Mussolini. Mussolini appointed Enrico Fermi to be academician of Italy in 1929, and Fermi I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that like the Italians would, Fermi. Um, He was an Italian physicist whose work helped develop the first nuclear reactor. He won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1938, and when he traveled to Stockholm to get the award, he and his wife, who was Jewish, um, escaped from Mussolini's fascist regime and emigrated to the United States. And Mm -hmm. Eventually, he moved to Los Alamos, New Mexico, in the later stages of the Manhattan Project, where he served as a consultant and was an observer at the first test of the atom bomb at White Sands in July 1945. Cool. So there you go: we that, White to Mussolini to Fermi to the atom bomb.
0: That's an incredible life, right there. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know? <laughs> What what and the really cool thing is the University of Chicago Archives has a signed telegram from Mussolini to Fermi announcing his appointment to the Royal Academy. Would that not be a cool collection? Uh, yeah. Just to look at you know. That's amazing. See what, what who all Fermi was hobnobbing with. Um, world-famous physicist. So there you go, William Allen White. You can connect him to anybody or almost anything.
0: William Allen White to the atom bomb by way of Mussolini.
1: Yeah.
2: I wonder wonder if Mussolini liked William Allen White's folksy writing style. I don't know. (laughs) know. (laughs) Isn't that really an evil dictator, you know? Would he like that kind of thing? Hmm.
1: I wouldn't I think know.
0: so. No. <laughs> I don't think so either. I'm a little
1: nervous to think that because White gave him the idea that he should shoot people like yeah. <laughs> they were doing in Russia. Because as we all know, he shot a lot of people or killed a lot of people later in Italy. Well,
0: you know, maybe they did. Kind of, I don't know if I want to say if they hit it off. But wasn't Mussolini a journalist by training? I mean, didn't he work for newspapers in Italy? That's kind of how he got his political start.
1: Well, you know more they than I do about, about that. about
0: journalism stuff.
1: Hmm. Oh, well. <laughs> well, Maybe Mussolini also had a folksy writing style. Yeah. Maybe I did. <laughs> Just okay. not a happy-go-lucky uh, <laughs> dictatorship.
0: Okay, well, that that's it for the Atom Bomb. Uh, Nikayla, would you like to introduce the challenge uh, for the next episode?
2: Yes, I would. The challenge will be to connect William Allen White to the alternative rock juggernaut Weezer. This band hails from Los Angeles and features albums with complex names like The Blue Album. <laughs> the Green Album, and the soon-to-be-released Red Album.
0: Right, so if you think you can connect William L. White to one of the most successful bands of the millennium, send us an email at podcast.kshs.org. At that is podcast with us. The world has turned and left me. That concludes episode 55, Fire Stick. If you'd like to actually see the Fire Stick slash Pipe Bomb, you can by visiting Forces of Nature, an exhibit at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka, or by going to our website, kshs.org. Come back in two weeks, when curator Laura Van Orsdel examines a piece of ledger art. This style of art is a long-established tradition among the Plains Indians, but this piece was completed recently and documents what has become the tragic legacy of interest in Native American art, looting. Find out how one artist is using her drawings to counter this criminal activity. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.